Okay, so we, um, we've kind of started this, this new section last week, and it's, it's quite different from the historical kind of thing that we had been looking at since the beginning of the year. But I love this new section. I, I, it, it covers, of course, a vast amount of time. It kind of goes from the beginning all the way to the final things and to the end, to the final days. And so it just, there, there's just this, this vision of all kinds of things happening. And then in it also, God unfolds truths that are going to happen in the future because he wants us to know, because he wants us to understand. And, and so, and as he unfolds these things, um, he's so precise at times about what's going to happen. But the other part of this, this section is that it's astonishingly beautiful. I just love the words sometimes. They just, they just are, are, it's like poetry. Well, it is poetry in a way. And yet, the other thing that's going on in this section is, as I, as I was going through it, and I don't know about you, but it is incredibly revealing of our fallen hearts. I mean, I, as I read this, I thought, mm this is, there are a lot of things that I need to know from this. And so I, so I think that as we, we read this, we, we not only have to see it as telling us about the hearts and minds of what was going on in Israel, but what our hearts are tempted to be like, what they are like, what we are like without the Spirit of God. And so um, I think that's really helpful. And so, anyway, in the unfolding, as God begins unfolding this vast history, this vast picture of what's going to be unfolding in our world from almost the beginning all the way to the end, he reveals so much about himself. He reveals his omnipotence. But he also reveals his utter sovereignty over all things, over all things. And he reveals his omniscience. He shows us that he knows the beginning and the ending and all things in between. And he, he reveals to us, which is so amazing, is that he reveals to us his purpose and his plans because he wants us to know. He wants us to know what is going to happen. He wants us to have faith. He wants us to have peace. He wants us to see what is going to unfold. He also reveals his love in a way, my friends, that I think we cannot help but become worshipers as we read this. This is our God that is being unfolded here. And that is what we're going to look at this morning. What are we learning about our God in the midst of all of this? So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. And then at the very end, we're going to have a few minutes on application. So let me pray for us. Father, um, how we need to be taught by your word, and I pray that you would enlarge our hearts today, that you would open our ears, and that you would not cause our ears to be closed, but that we would hear with our ears, that we would see with our eyes, that we would not be blind, that we would not be deaf, that we would hear you and know that this is your love letter to us. That we would know that you are for us and not against us. That your purposes are, is, 
always, your purpose is always to protect your children and to bring us to that final day when Jesus will come. So we thank you for this. We thank you for Isaiah and his beautiful words. We thank you that he had ears to hear you, Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so our passage today began by revisiting the subject of idols. It's right there. I mean, we just, we walked right into it. And though we briefly looked at it last week, here we encounter something a little different. It seems as if God is kind of giving us a picture of, of of a courtroom scene. And he's calling in the idols to come and stand before him. And he's going to challenge these idols. He's going to challenge the claims that are put upon these idols. And so he puts these so-called gods on trial. Now, I want to tell you why he's doing this. Because um, the problem that's being addressed is that the nations around Israel always, there always are these gods that these nations are worshiping. It's been true since their beginning. And so, as the nations of Israel was going to go into captivity, there would be gods in Babylon, too. So, there were gods everywhere that there were these gods that man had created. There were these gods, these idea of these gods that were going on. And people would worship these idols. But here's the problem. Sadly, Israel had an idol problem. That they were often prone to worship idols. Oh, they worshiped Yahweh, but they also worshiped idols. In Egyptian captivities, when they, when they were in Egypt, they worshiped the idols of Egypt. When they came out and were about ready to enter the, the promised land, they worshiped idols. This is what Joshua says. He, says. he says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what, what Joshua is saying is, he's, he was saying, you have to make a choice. You have to make a choice about what God you're going to serve. You're either going to serve Yahweh or you're going to be serving other gods. But you have to make a choice. You, can't, you cannot serve them both at the same time. But it was also true as we go through, as you read through the Old Testament, that that again, the Israelites couldn't do this. They wouldn't choose to just worship Yahweh. They had these high places. And you, you read about it throughout the Old Testament. It, they'll be talking about the high places, and this is where they worshiped other gods. And there's Hezekiah was one of the gods, that I mean, one of the kings that tore down some of the high places. But it was also, it was always this going on in the life of, of Israel. And we find that that even though Yahweh was the main god of the Israelites, they would also worship these other gods. Now, I need to tell you, this is not a small thing to God. And I remind you that the first two commandments have to do with idolatry. God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And that doesn't mean that you shall have that that you that you don't have a god <laughs> you don't have 
me as first, and then you can have these other gods. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you can have no gods that are before my face. That's what he's saying. You have, this is, he's saying what Joshua was saying. You can't, you have to choose who you will serve. But then it goes on and it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, I'm sorry, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And what God is saying here is not only shall you not worship idols, but you shall not make an idol of me and worship it because I will reveal myself to you. And you cannot make an idol that has anything like who I am. So in our passage today, God is calling the idols of Babylon to come forth and make a case for their deity. And God is what he wants to do is show the worthlessness of these idols. And he gives this test that he puts before these so-called gods, and it's a two-part test. And he said, this is what he asks of them. He says, first, I want you to tell me of past things and why they happened and what their outcome was. So you tell me that. And there was silence. They said nothing. They had nothing to say. They didn't know because these were dumb idols. But then the next thing he put before them is he says, okay, tell me something that's going to happen in the future. If you can't, if you can't tell me things that happened in the past and why they happened, tell me something that, happens, that will happen in the future. Now, why did he put this test before them? Because it was a straight line that would divide who God was and who they were. Because absolutely God could do this. These... You see, these idols were created in the hearts of fallen man. And, and fallen man created them because they wanted a God they could control. They wanted a God that, that, that was explainable to them, that, that was not like Yahweh, that they couldn't understand. But these gods were mute. And so God's judgment comes down upon them. And, they, and he said, and he called upon them and he said, behold, these gods. They can give you no answers. They can give you no hope. They have no power. And so that was what he was doing as he called these idols. But we're reminded that that's not true of Yahweh. Because what has he unfolded to Isaiah? He had told him, he had told Isaiah 150 years in the past something that was going to happen in the future, and now it's here. And so when the people are experiencing this, they know that this is something God told years and years ago, but now it has come to happen. This is what God has, can do. This is your God. He can tell you the future. He can tell you what's going to happen because he holds all things in his hands. And so the people are being challenged. Do not worship the gods of Babylon. They can give you nothing. And then we come to these, this passage that begins in chapter 42. So we've just talked about these idols, and now we have this, this amazing thing because God is singing a song about his servant. That's what's happening here in, in 42, 1 through 9. And so we meet this servant, this servant par excellence. And as you know from your study, Israel was often referred to as the servant of the Lord. And Israel as a nation was meant to be a light to the nations. 
and they were meant to be a witness to Yahweh so that the nations would want to know their God. That was their purpose. It wasn't just for them that Yahweh had set them apart. It was that they were to be a servant and to be a light. In all of their worship and all of their living, they were meant to be faithful and trust Yahweh and worship and serve him alone. And they were meant to bear to bring justice. They were meant to, to bear truth to the world about what, what is justice in the world, what is the right way to live. But that's not who they were. They didn't turn out to be that. Instead, Israel was fearful and unfaithful and unjust. And the light that they offered was merely a flicker. They were, they were not drawing any any of the nations to them to their God. And so now we have this true servant of God who would be everything that Israel was not, everything Israel was meant to be, but he would be even more than that. And so God starts here and he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold and in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, because we spent time going through this section in our pretty carefully in our homework, I'm just I want to just talk to you a minute about justice. It's mentioned three times in this little section. And according to Oswald, the what justice actually means, what that word means is right order. Right order. And it's the opposite of chaos. And so what is being what is being talked about here is doing the right thing. But it's not doing the right thing according to what we think is the right thing. It's doing the right thing according to what God says is the right thing. It means trusting God's word and and his perfect ways. That's what it means to, to be just. The very characteristics of the servant that God is singing this song about tells us what justice is. He shows us. Because God says... He will not be a tyrant. This one will not be a tyrant. He will not be ordering and shouting and forcing people to do his will. No, no. He's going to be a gentle. He's going to be gentle with the broken and the needy. And those who are seeking God in this sin-encased world, he will go to them and he will try to lead them. He will draw them to himself. That this justice will be according to God's perfect order and law because this servant will know that what God, what God commands is always what is good for God's people. And note that something else comes out as he is revealing this servant. He is revealing that this servant is going to be a light not only to Israel but a light to the nations. And he will draw people. He will be the one who draws people to see their God, to see this God and want to know about this God. But there's another amazing thing that happens in this particular passage because God says to this servant, I will give you as a covenant for my people. It's a glorious statement. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to give you as the covenant to be, and as a light to the nations. And what God is saying is he is giving this, this servant not just to proclaim the truth to the nations, but this servant will be the covenant for the people of the world. You know what that means? This is God's promise. 
that, that this is the one who is the very promise of God. This is the covenant God has been talking about. He, here is my promise, and he will keep both sides of this covenant. He will be faithful to everything, and he will, he will pay the price if anyone doesn't keep that covenant. This is the final seed of Abraham. This is the true king. This is the final prophet. This is the great and faithful high priest. Because in him, all of the promises of God are yes and amen. That's who this servant is. And as we stop back, step back and look at these things, it calls us to worship. That's what it's meant to be. It's meant that we would bow before him, not that we would try to do all of these things, that we would bow before him here is hope for the whole world and god wants us to see that this this servant though he comes and he is he is the servant that israel never was he will he will be faithful in all of his calling and he will reach to and be a light to the nations that's how far god's grace will reach and he will open eyes that are blind and he will set prisoners free And God says then, behold, behold my servant, because former things are gone and new things I now declare. And then we come to verses 18 through 25. And this is about Israel's failure in exile. It's an interesting section because here again, we run into, we've just had this beautiful picture of the faithful servant. And now we're back to the servant Israel. And Israel is in exile. But Israel is in exile, and she thinks that the reason is very different than what the reason is. She thinks that she is in exile because Babylon and their gods came and took them. They defeated them, and they tore everything up. They destroyed the temple, and they took them back captivity and so i mean wouldn't it be natural i guess for them to think that the gods of babylon are stronger than yahweh and the charge that israel has eyes but would not observe and ears that are open but they would not hear and what that's talking about is that they had this glorious law of god they should have known that they were being unfaithful And that something was happening here because God was doing it. But instead of bringing justice like they were supposed to, the passage says they plundered and looted. And God brought the fire of his anger because they refused to understand, because they despised his ways, and because they did not take his love to heart. And that's where we have this the um, Israel and the question that is hanging here then in the area is there is their situation hope, hopeless is God finally going to walk away from them is that what he's going to do because there is no hope for these people but chapter 43 chapter 43 begins with a startling response something completely unexpected because now the Lord says He who created you, O Jacob, fear not. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. 
When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You want to know what grace is? That's what grace is. What did Israel do? They did nothing good. This is all about what God has done and who God is and what is in his heart. That God has set his love upon a particular people and he would not let them go. That God's promises are forever secure. That he has the power to do all that he has determined to do and he has a way of justice to do that. He has a way of making sure that would happen and that justice and that way of justice will happen through the final and true servant of God. It is his promise to be with his own through any circumstance. And God's promises always stand because God is faithful. That was Israel's hope. That is our hope. That will always be our hope. Every day we need to realize our hope and every day we need to see that it is found in this faithful and true servant of the Lord. And then we come to chapter 43, verses 16 through 21. And in this section, God reminds his people of his deliverance of them in the past when he delivered them from Egypt at the Red Sea. And he tells them, as he reminds them to think about it, and then he says, don't remember that. Don't think about that. Don't remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Why? Because I am doing a new thing. And behold, it is springing forth, and the question that God asks them is, do you perceive that that's happening? God did great things in the past, but they are nothing compared to what he is about to do. And God's people will declare his praise because it's so amazing. But he asked them, do you perceive it? Remember, my friends, that he had made this servant to be a covenant for the people. That he said, this is my covenant. This is my promise. And he's asking the people, do you perceive it? And then there's this statement where it says, I will have rivers in the desert. And commentators said that this is perhaps referring to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And God is just saying, do you perceive the greatness of what I am promising you? Well, the answer is obviously not. Because in verses 22 to 28, it seems like a strange place to end this amazing chapter. It's almost as if we are caught in a dilemma here, in a place, two places, and that's probably a bit of the truth. We have seen great hope and unimaginable promises, but they lie in the future. And this passage seems to be bringing us back to to the present time of their captivity, and it seems like we're, we're just here. And there's this general consensus among commentators that I read anyway, is that there's a talking, that the talking here is that the people are still having this mixture of worship of both God and idols. And they're bringing sacrifices. It's not that they're not bringing sacrifices. They're, they're bringing lots of sacrifices. 
But God says they're not worshiping. Why does he say they're not worshiping? Because they're bringing sacrifices. And the commentators say that he is rebuking them because they had no heart for him. You see, they were going through the motions. They had these little gods on the side, but they were still going through the motions. And they were offering sacrifices. In fact, they were probably bringing lots of sacrifices. But he was wearied by their roteness of what they were doing. They were worshiping as a ritual and not as a relationship. God didn't want more sheep and he didn't want more bulls. He wanted the hearts of his people. He wanted them to behold him and he wanted them to see him as their hope and their glory and their joy. You see, even in offering the sacrifice, they were taking the credit for themselves. The more we bring, the more he's going to love us. The more we do, the better it's going to be. And the indication is that the people were doing this for themselves and not because their God was worthy, not because he was worthy of their whole hearts. God forgives not because you have earned it. It is because of who he is and because of what his servant has done. And that's what worship is. And that's what we are to learn over and over and over and over again. And we still forget it. We still forget. We still think. At times we think, even though we know about grace, we just think, if I do this, God's going to be nicer to me. We do. And God is just telling us over and over, I love you with an everlasting love. So, What are we to learn from this passage? I think if we bring this into our lives today and into our hearts and into our church, and if we are to be a light to the world around us, I think maybe we're supposed to grasp this. One commentator wrote this of Isaiah. He says, Isaiah saw the world unfolding when God was revealing these things before they ever happened. And he was revealing things that covered to the end of time. And these things that were being unveiled to Isaiah had to be confusing. It had captivity and it had judgment and it had hope and it had all of these things going on. One commentator writes that regardless of the process that God was unfolding to him, Isaiah knew God, and he knew his God would be faithful, and all of his promises would be true. And so what this commentator says is that when all of this was unfolding, Isaiah's grip was on God's word and God's promises. You see, if Isaiah held on to God's word and God's promises of this servant and his promise of all the things he's going to do, then that would keep him settled. If he would believe those things, then he would know where he was and he would know that what God was saying was a faithful God and that he was the omnipotent God. And this God would never have to change direction or purposes or his promises because he's an immutable God and he's a forgiving God. Remember that everything Isaiah believed was informed by his encounter with the one that was high and lifted up. That when Isaiah went into that, had that vision, and he went into the heavenly places, 
And he was undone because he saw the Holy One of Israel. And he had nothing to say because he knew that he was nothing. And what was it that happened? That there was a coal taken from the altar. And some believe that, some commentators believe that that coal was was the charred remains of the offering of a lamb. And that, and that coal was taken and it touched the lips of Isaiah. And though the one who stood there was holy, 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 all of a sudden there was forgiveness. And as it touched his lips, it was as if it was all of those things that came to him. This is a holy, holy God. And he has provided a sacrifice and he has brought forgiveness. And it is an eternal forgiveness. And the question that we have before us is, is this the way we look at our world as it's unfolding? As we see what is happening today, and frankly, it feels as if this culture and world events are crumbling right before our very eyes. Is our grip on God's word and God's promises? That no matter what is happening, is that our reality? Is what God says and what God has done, is that our hope? Even if we in our lives and in our church seem completely out of step with our culture, we need to say, what is God calling us to do? And put our hope in him. And even if we have to stand firm on things that will cost us, even if we are ridiculed, will we remain steadfast, trusting God's word and God's promises? If terror unfolds around us, will we trust God? If someday we are put in prison for our faith, will we trust God? Will we be a light to the nations? Will we bring the love and justice of God's truth and God's ways to bear in this world? Will we worship our one true God alone? Will we seek God? Will we be on our knees before him? Will we lay down our lives for others? In other words, will we help the poor and needy? Will we stand for the helpless and do so in a way that glorifies God? How do we do those things? You see, the final question is, will we seek God? This is spiritual work that we must do in a flesh and blood world. And that requires us to be worshipers and prayers. I remember reading a book about Charles Spurgeon, a man who suffered from severe depression, but he could never stop praising God. And, and sometimes he would be in the pulpit and he would be preaching, and the, and he, but he was suffering from this deep depression. And Spurgeon is quoted as saying that he knew why he could do that. He knew that the thing that kept him able to preach was that there was a group of women together on their knees praying for him. And that the reason the word could go out is because they were holding him up before the Holy One of Israel. And that throughout the week there were prayer groups meeting in that church praying for God's word to go forth. I've thought about this a lot and I've talk to some people about this, and I think there could be no more blessed service that we could render to not only our homes and to our church and to the world than that we became prayers, that we would take seriously that 
We cannot do this on our own. You see, prayer is our way of saying we need you, O Lord. We cannot do this if you are not our strength, if you are not our hope, if you are not our power. I feel that we just kind of think it's all done. And yet we need to be on our knees. So, in light of that, next week we are going to, once a month, here we're going to meet, if you want. I mean, we won't take names. But we're going to meet and and pray for our land and for our church, for our homes, for our hearts. And we're going to pray together. The, The nursery is going to stay open for, I forget how long it is, for 45 minutes, I think. And we're just going to pray if you can do that. And we're going to to um, hold on to God and try to become, um, just trust God more. So anyway, that's one thing that hopefully that will be something that will be a blessing in our own hearts and a blessing to um, all things. So let me pray for us and we'll close. Father, um, we are often like Israel, that we say we believe these things and then we go out and do them in our own way. Lord, would you give us hearts that cling to you, cling to your promises and to your word. May we be women who just grip you because we have no hope without you. So, Father, we pray that we would become praying women and that we would pray for our church to be a light in this community and to be a a hope and that the gospel will go forth from this place. So, Father, would you be with us? Will you stir us by your Holy Spirit and will you fill us? We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.